Our passage this morning is from Psalm 119, as we uh, turn back to this uh, wonderful section of Scripture, and uh, we're kind of in the home stretch with it. We start today in verse 97, so I invite you to turn there with me and uh, follow along as I read it. Psalm 97, excuse me, Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. This is the M, if you will, if, as it might be transliterated into the English. Mem is the, is the Hebrew letter. So starting in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Let's pray. Lord, we pray your blessing over your word. We thank you for it today. Lord, we thank you for these bold statements of confidence that come from the psalmist. Father, I pray right now that you'd remind us that it's only Jesus that can stand and proclaim these words in their fullness. Lord, it's only Christ that truly loved you and loved your word with Perfectly, Lord, with all of his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength. Lord, it's only Jesus that, Father, held back his feet from every evil way and knew no sin. Lord, it was only Christ that never turned aside from what you had called him to do. Lord, he is our hope. He is he is our strength. So, Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus today, even as we learn what it means to grow in your knowledge, to grow, Lord, in in wisdom, to grow in discernment, and, Lord, to to just taste the sweetness, Lord, of who you are. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on the end of your road this morning, all right, is is a little honey straw. Pick it up. I know some of you already have because I've seen you eating it, okay? All right? So, I don't see Jerry here. Okay, so Jerry Ball will just, this is one of those deals where you just, you're better off asking for forgiveness than permission, okay? That's how it is. And so I'm just trusting you. What I want you to do is if you, if you have a little pocket knife, you can pull it out and tear off the end, or you can just bite it. And I want you just to, to take this all day. I mean, during the sermon, okay? Just kind of be eating on the honey and tasting it. Unless you're allergic to it, bless your heart if you are, okay? I'm sorry that you are. Um, but I've seen some kids already eating them. There's some of these in the Family Life Center. If you're at home um, and you have some honey, go ahead and get some out. I want to. So we're going to hear and we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good today. So you can just bite it off. It, maybe the dentist will, you know, he'll fix whatever he tears up, okay? This is one of those deals where I'm just like, I thought this would be a good idea. And I, and I know others are going, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. So I'll deal with Jerry and Andrew tomorrow in the mess that we make. But I'm trusting you to pick them up and take them and put them in the garbage can when you're done with them, okay? So as I was, as I was um, just thinking through this passage this week and working on it this week, I was reading because I did not know. 
I know that infants cannot take honey. As Susan and I, you know, we keep bees and, and we, we harvest honey. So I, I know that babies can't take honey until they reach a certain age. But I've never seen one that when they did not finally get to that age where they could taste it, just didn't go, oh, wow. Okay? It's just this. Babies learn even as early as nine weeks in the womb. They're developing their mouths and their tongues and taste buds. And whatever the mama eats and goes in through the ambionic fluid, they begin to develop those tastes. And they're able to distinguish between what is bitter and what is sweet. And every time they will choose what is sweet. And our Father in heaven wants us as his children to do the same thing. He wants to develop in us a palate for what pleases him. So that sweetness, the sweetness of God and his way and his word would be something that we treasure, that we want it. You know, we, we just seem to can't do without it. And our Heavenly Father wants us to learn what is sweet and to taste it and consume it and have it. And this passage today is unusual in the passage that we have in Psalm 119 because there's no request here. The psalmist does not ask for anything. He's just simply making a profession of faith. He's stating some truths. And, and the, the synopsis of it, I think, boils down to biblical wisdom or even to what we would call discernment, although that word's not exactly used. And biblical wisdom, Susan gave me a definition of biblical wisdom that she got from the Harris family that they got from one of their homeschool um, curriculums. And that wisdom that I put in your sermon notes is defined as knowing, loving, and obeying God and applying that knowledge to make good decisions. So that's that's wisdom, knowing, loving and obeying God and applying that knowledge to make good decisions. So today's passage says that wisdom comes from God and it equips us. It gives us the ability to know the right path to take in every situation. God's word does that for us. And as we grow in that wisdom, then I believe we begin to develop a palate for what truly is sweet. Our taste buds changed, and he develops in us just a craving for him and his word. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Look at the first two verses there. Your word, I want us to see that, that it is God's word that gives us wisdom and understanding. And that wisdom and understanding is beyond what the world can teach us. And the result of it is significant. So I know the right way to live. Notice what he says there. The words wiser in verse 98, understanding in verse 99, verse 100, I understand. Verse 101, he's learning to apply that wisdom and that understanding and I hold back my feet. I'm making good choices, he says. I don't turn aside from your rules. Down in verse 104, I have understanding and so I know what's good and what's bad. What's the, what's the deal? What's the difference between knowledge and one step further, I think, which is understanding? And even going one step further than that. So, so knowledge is what? Well, I think it's just facts. We know something when we know facts about something. When we understand just some basic truths about something. We're able to learn, remember, and kind of recollect facts. I did a lot of that as I was going through school, all right? Just learn it, memorize it, and regurgitate it back up on the page. 
And after the test was over, please don't ask me any more questions. Because, right, I, I remembered the facts. I knew what. Well, let's take it one step further. What happens when we know those facts, but then we're able to kind of understand what they really mean? That's understanding. Understanding is the ability to translate facts into principles, okay? To take those facts, and, and one writer said it, it, it gives us a lens that helps us focus and produces principles, okay? So we take those facts, and we begin to look into them and understand what they're saying. Later on in Psalm 119 and verse 130, it'll say, The unfolding of your word gives light. That light comes on, and it imparts understanding to the simple. Understanding is more than facts. It's getting into the meat of what they are and understanding why that means what it means. And then wisdom is taking that understanding and applying it in life. Taking that understanding and applying it in life. It, it's taking that, those principles that we've learned, those facts that we've learned and grown in that, and it teaches us what to do and when to do it. All right? It's just knowing what to do and when to do it. Now, what does James tell us in the New Testament? It says, if we lack that wisdom, we can ask for it, and God is faithful to give it to us. He also tells us that the characteristics of that, he says, the wisdom that is above in James 3.17 is pure, peaceable, gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. That's God's wisdom. It's contrary to the world's wisdom. Spurgeon said, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a fool who is knowing. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. So the writer says, I have wisdom. And he says, I have wisdom greater than my enemies. We've talked about them before. We'll talk about it again. He says there, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. These enemies are arrogant. They're insulting. They've sought to trap him. They've lied about him. They've taunted him. They are wicked, it says, in three different players. They are in three different places. They are liars, it tells us, in three different places. And they are setting traps for him. But in all of this, those efforts fail because he has something that they don't have. He has a relationship first with God, and he has his word, but then notice that it goes even further than that. What are the words that we see in this text? I meditate on it all day. Your testimonies are my meditation in verse 99. I have understanding because I keep your precepts. I keep your word in verse 101. I, he says, I... I've gained understanding because this word, listen, it has gone from facts to knowledge to a deep understanding. And, it, and it's in his heart now. And he's meditating on it. Okay? We, we've talked about this before. But to take a verse or maybe even a concept, a few words within a verse, and just to chew on them all day. Just to... Think about that and to say, God, help me take this little bit, this taste, and just apply it today in everything that I see, an understanding of you. God, grow that in me. Help me develop that in my life. So he says, I have wisdom beyond my enemies. This is exactly, we had a conversation this week in our church, JT and I were talking to a brother, and we were talking about just the battles that we face every day. 
And the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10 that though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battles the way the world would do it. All right? We need to remember this when we're in the middle of a contentious season, a contentious election cycle like we're in right now. Remember that the way we as Christians respond is not the way the world would respond. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And then he says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We don't fight the way the world does. Our weapon is different. We have God's word. It makes us wiser than our enemies. And then he says in verse 99, it almost sounds arrogant. I have more understanding than all my teachers. He's not being... I read one article this week that says he's not being sophomoreish, and 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 the writer said that the word sophomore is more than just the second year of school. It it means you got a whole lot of knowledge and pride that goes with it, and you really don't know nothing. That's my paraphrase of what he was saying. But he's not being sophomoreish here. It, it can sound presumptuous, but the understanding here is that he's referring to people whose teaching is not based on God's truth. His teaching is not on the teaching with a capital T, one writer says. Because after all, Ephesians and Romans both tell us, Paul does, that teachers are gifts to us, right? I mean, even teachers within our secular school system or homeschool system or whatever it might be, they are gifts to us. We, we're not speaking poorly of them, but here a principle is being applied. And what the writer is saying here is that mere knowledge... And the ability to communicate that knowledge does not translate necessarily into wisdom and insight. You can have a Ph.D. and still be unwise, biblically dumb as a rock, is what he seems to be saying here. So having knowledge and having degrees and those kinds of things does not translate into biblical wisdom. Our Christian students face this reality. And we need to understand that and pray for them in whatever setting they're in. To some degree, even within a a Christian school setting, they, they face this reality. The underlying principle of our education system, public and further, is naturalism. That's that's the underlying principle there. It's evolutionary truth. And to go into that setting And to confront that, if not verbally, at least in your mind, and understand that that is contrary to a biblical view of reality, then it's not just in biology and physics and those types of things. It works its way all the way into liberal arts. And so as that reality works its way into that, then as a Christian, you go into that setting as a student, and and one of two things is going to happen. You're going to be ignored or you're going to be confronted. By ignored, I mean... You can believe that if you want to, but just keep it to yourself. Don't don't state it. Don't say it. Don't bring it up. Don't infringe upon my rights by bringing up that. So they just ignore it or they confront it. If you do bring it up, then we begin to see what the true understanding of real tolerance is, right? It does not include that biblical worldview or those biblical principles. See, tolerance is a theme, but Christianity is excluded from that. So I think this application, this understanding that there is a knowledge and a wisdom that comes from God's word, 
Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it's not even understood. We'll see that in a minute, that they can't understand it. So take heart, believer. Take heart, student. The biblical knowledge and wisdom that you have through Christ surpasses that of the world. Let me go ahead and just read a little bit of what's in 1 Corinthians. Turn there if you want to. He says in verse 25, Paul does, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Go on down to chapter 2. And notice what he says down there. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. As Christians, we're speaking a different language, as it were. And so the world will not accept that. Now, we don't give up. That doesn't mean we change our language to theirs. That's the danger. That's the temptation. No, again, we're dealing with situations and circumstances here on a spiritual plane. So we're praying, God, open their eyes and hearts to hear and understand your word. Lord, only you can give them a translator, the Holy Spirit. But Lord, help me be bold and confident. Help me be winsome and compassionate and gracious. Lord, he says later on, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Hang on to that. We have the mind of Christ. I'll bring it up at the end. So so I have wisdom and knowledge beyond my teachers. He He then says, I have wisdom and understanding beyond the elders. Now, the Bible teaches us to honor our elders, and the word here is, is really the aged, okay? It's not the position of elders. It's, it's those who have a little more years on them, maybe a little more wear on the tread. You know what I'm saying? Okay? That's what he's talking about here. And we're to treat them with reverence and respect, whatever age group you may be in or you consider them to be in. But here's the deal. It is possible for them to be wrong. I know that may come as a shock to some of you gray hairs. But it is possible that age does not make us any wiser. And that is a crying shame. That is a tragedy when that happens. But the old make mistakes. They get it wrong. They allow their priorities and their perspectives and their hearts to get all out of whack. Life experiences, one writer said, are helpful, but they are not infallible. And so the writer here is is saying, just recognize something, that God's not, the wisdom of God, his word, his knowledge is not something that's doled out based on age. Okay? You can be wise and you can be 20 years younger than another brother in Christ. I read a little article this week that John Piper wrote. It was actually in a little book that he edited. It came out 12 years ago. He wrote this when he was 62, so he's 74 now, I think. And he was talking about just simply the getting old for the glory of God was the title of the article. 
And he said in that behind me come 78 million boomers age 44 to 62. Over 10,000 of them are turning 60 every day. And that still, by the way, is the case. And he said, if you read the research, we are, speaking of a baby boomer, which I am there toward the end, we are a self-centered generation. Our likes, he said, include working from home, anti-aging supplements, and climate control. Our dislikes, he says, include wrinkles, millennial sleeping habits, social security, and insecurity. Our hobbies, he said, are low-impact sports, Uber parenting, and whining and dining. Our hangouts, he said, are the farmer's market, tailgate parties, and backyards. And we have more resources than any other generation in history to do that. Twelve years ago, it was bumping around two and a half trillion dollars. Boomers own more than any other generation alive today. And yet with all these resources, I read a Pew Research article that says that baby boomers, as they age, I'm talking about today, are less optimistic and less hopeful than any other generation behind us or in front of us. We are, the study said, in a collective funk. We're more downbeat about our lives than our adults who are younger or older. So... The point is that young people, and you decide if you fall into that category, okay? That's up to you to decide, all right? This is one place where we're going to be kind of subjective. That's not our trend, but we will here. So I have more wisdom than those who are older than me. It says that I watch and I see, I read and I discern and I meditate on God's Word. And I learn the lessons from God's word and I look at those examples around me and I thank God for the good ones to follow. And I learn what it means to see the difference and I don't follow those. Ralph Winter, a missiologist, wrote an article about retirement. I was reading it. He said, where in the Bible do we see retirement? My point as bringing this up is that young people do not necessarily follow the example of those who go before you who quit. They just quit. And whatever. He says, where in the Bible do we see retirement? Did Moses retire? Did Paul retire? Peter? John? Do military officials retire in the middle of a war? (laughs) When it writes, millions of Christian men and women are finishing their formal careers in their 50s and 60s. And for the most of them, they they will be a good 20 years before their physical and mental powers start to fail. What will it mean to live those final years for the glory of God? And he pointed out that in the state of New York where he lived, half of the men retiring died within two years. Half. They don't do anything. And we weren't created to not do anything. So young people, be wise in pouring your life out till God decides that life is over. Set the trend for us and show us what it means to be on fire for Jesus and living with a passion for him. And I don't know about you, the rest of you parents or grandparents, but I hope and pray that my boys and my grandchildren choose God's way and his wisdom over mine any time. All right? Choose God's ways and his wisdom over mine any time. And I pray that they have that relationship with me, that they can come to me and talk about that if they see an inconsistency in my life. We need to be able to do that with each other. 
Secondly, notice what he says in verse 101 and 102. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Your word, Lord, shows me the difference between right and wrong. So I know how to avoid evil. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. See, it's through God's word and only biblical truth that we, under, that we see and understand what right and wrong are and the path that we need to stay on. It's like God's word gives us divine guardrails, okay? Divine guardrails. Keeps us on, it's a, it's a spiritual, one writer said it's a spiritual GPS that guides us in the right direction. That's what God's word is. And apart from that, we're left to ourselves and others, and there's no future in that. Proverbs 14 says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to what? Death, in verse 12. So the word of God helps us stay on the right path. It helps us make right choices. And so because I love God's teaching and because I've been taught his ways and his rules, and that understanding and wisdom then help me know what is right and wrong and to choose that, to choose the right thing. And to honor Christ, there are some places that I don't need to go and there are some things that I don't need to be a part of and there are some things that I don't need to watch or read or listen to. And I need to walk in the right way and do the right thing. And the psalmist, as he walks this path, is saying, Lord, it's your rules, it's your judgments, it's your testimony about yourself that keeps me on this path, keeps me in the direction I ought to go. It's his compass, if you will, for life. And that's the direction that he follows. And what happens if we get off? Hmm? What happens if we get off just a little bit? I, mean, I don't know about you, but I take one little left turn wrong, and it just... And, and let's forget the GPS for a minute. Let's forget that woman that says, do a U-turn, do a U-turn, U-turn, U-turn. Shut up. If I want to go the wrong way, let me go the wrong way. But it just takes one wrong turn, right? And it's that way with God's Word. We just lax up on it here, relax on it here, take a little less here. No, not, not really. That was cultural then, not now. And before you know it, we're just lost. We're moving in the wrong direction. But His Word, it says, gives us that direction, gives us that understanding, showing us what's right and wrong and helping us choose that. Look at verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You've been eating it? Hmm? You've been tasting that through the service? Just think about that for a second. Your word develops in me, the psalmist is saying, a taste for what is good. So I know how to love what is true and hate what is false. Taste and see, the psalmist says, that the Lord is good. Religion is distasteful. Okay? It is distasteful. We're talking about a relationship here that's not a drudgery, it's a delight. Back in Psalm 19, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb, it says. Last week I was inspecting my beehives. Just in them, you know, doing some work, checking mites and making sure that the hives were healthy and and it was, as I pulled one frame out, there was a big clump of honeycomb and honey on the bottom of it that came loose. So I just scooped that up and stuck it in a little container. And before I even got back in the truck, I made sure that there were no bees in it, and I just ate it. And I could have stayed there all day. 
just, yes, I've stuck my finger right in the middle of that comb before and drawn it out and put it in my mouth. I have, I have this taste for honey, for what is sweet. And the psalmist here is warning us, telling us, encouraging us that there's nothing sweeter than God's word. There's nothing sweeter than him and his word and his ways to those who are truly growing in biblical wisdom and knowledge and understanding. I refer one more time to a little article that John Piper wrote. How to delight in God's word. You know, he does this little thing where someone writes a question and he he just does a little meditation on it or whatever. Someone asked the question, how do I delight in God's word? How do I grow in my delight of God's word? And here's what he said. Never reduce Christianity to a matter of demands, resolutions, or willpower. It is not a matter, excuse me, it is a matter of what we love, what we delight in, what tastes good to us. He goes on, when Jesus came into the world, humanity was split according to what they loved. John 3, 19, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than light. The the, the righteous and the wicked, you see, are separated by what we love. Darkness or light. Sweetness of Christ. Or what I would call just that bitter, pour out of a packet substitute sweetener. There's really no match. So he answered that question, how can I come to delight in the word of God? And his answer was twofold. Pray for new taste buds on the tongue of your heart and meditate on the staggering promises of God to his people. Pray for new taste buds on your heart and just meditate on God's amazing promises. The psalm ends, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So it started with this love of God's word and that knowledge. Started really with this emotion. I love your word. And it ends with a taste. Okay, so the heart's involved here. The appetite's involved here. It's getting down to the very core of who we are as humans. What we love and what we delight in. I love your word. And and your word and your ways are sweet to me. And that all culminates in what... What we would understand is discernment, okay? Discernment. It is sorely lacking among God's people today. Tim Chalice a few years ago wrote a book on discernment, and he defined discernment as the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. It's a skill we learn through the word. And the Hebrew understanding of this Hebrew word for understanding is very closely related to what we would call discernment. Taking knowledge and applying it and making a distinction, making a distinction. I I mentioned a book. I I put it on Facebook, our page last night. I I picked this little book up yesterday afternoon, and I didn't quit till I had finished it. It's called Before You Vote. It's a little book, 120 pages or so, by David Platt, pastor at McLean Bible Church up in Virginia. The, The story behind the book, as he tells in the book, is actually something that happened a year ago in June. Remember, there was a a mass shooting up there in Virginia. And on this particular Sunday, President Trump had been playing golf and stopped by the church unannounced. And his aides asked David Platt 
if he would pray for the president up on the platform. And he did. Now, he had just talked with his congregation earlier, and so he read from Second Timothy about how we're called to pray. And, and he prayed for the president, and oh, my word. He said, he said, I started getting countless requests from national news and television outlets. I turned them all down. Some said I approved of everything the president does. And he puts in parentheses, in case you're wondering, I don't. Others claim that I apologize for praying for the president, and in case you're wondering, I didn't. It turns out on Sunday that I made a lot of people glad, while those on the other side of the aisle were mad. And on Monday, it turned the tables. Everyone who had been glad suddenly was mad. And in less than 24 hours, I'd managed to be labeled both a far-right conservative and a far-left-wing liberal. And that's not easy to do. But listen to this. He said, as I watched everything unfold, I couldn't help but draw one conclusion about the church amidst the the political climate in our country. We are sick. We are quick to accuse, belittle, cancel, distrust, disparage, deride, and divide from one another. And it's not just people outside the church, it's people inside the church too. And it's not just this or that side, it's all of us, including me. He says, we are swimming in a toxic political water that is poisoning the unity of G- the unity Jesus desires for his church. And we are polluting the glory Jesus deserves through us in the world. And he goes on in this little book just to answer some questions about how we as Christians carry out our responsibilities politically. But underlying all of that is the call of Christ to unity and discernment. To let the scriptures, not anyone or anything else, be what directs us and guides us. We need discernment. So let me wrap this up. Let me, let me kind of summarize this and give you a couple of applications. I wrote this in my journal as I've just been thinking through this this week. And I actually wrote this this morning. When my heart and mind love you and your teaching and the knowledge and the wisdom that I receive from your word, it overcomes my enemies. It surpasses worldly or human wisdom. And it transcends time and tradition. When my heart and mind love you and your teaching, I grow in wisdom and holiness. And I learn to love what you love and hate what you hate. God and your word and your ways are sweet to me. I think that summarizes this passage of Scripture. I think that summarizes what the psalmist is praying here. A heart and a mind that love his word, that loves him. And that that love and that wisdom and knowledge then that's in our lives overcomes our enemies. It surpasses worldly understanding. And it surpasses anything that comes to us through age. And as we apply that wisdom and understanding and begin to discern right and wrong, we make good choices. Good choices in how we live. Good choices in what we love. Good choices in what we hate. We begin to learn to love what God loves and hates what God hates. So unbeliever, let me, just, let me just tell you what I mentioned early. Look to Jesus. There is not a single human being that's ever drawn breath that can read this passage from Psalm 119 and say, I have done that. 
Accept him. Accept Jesus. He loved God's word the way we should. He alone held his feet back from evil the way we're called to. And he alone took the punishment for that evil. He did not turn aside even from the cross. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. Put your faith in him if you never have. And if you have, then remember what I said back from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have the mind of Christ. So this morning as I was early, I was reading back through, working through some things in the sermon. I I don't know why, but I was just drawn back to Philippians. And let me just read you the passage I was drawn to. Jot this down in your outline and go back and look at it later on. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I think part of the reason I remember that verse is because as I work through sermons, as I work through passages, you know, some of you say, wow, boy, you stomped on my toes today. Well, listen, I'm limping in here as I preach. Okay? God's Word's done a number on me, too. And so I was drawn, just being thankful, God... (laughs) I don't know, I don't see any progress this week, but I'm thankful that what you start, you're going to be faithful to complete. And in verse 7, Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Jesus, thank you for that grace that saves, sustains, and grows me in my knowledge and understanding of you. And here's what he says in verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Church, believer, brother and sister, you have the mind of Christ, right? You have the mind of Christ. An ability, a spiritual ability now through the Holy Spirit to comprehend spiritual truth that before you didn't have. You also have a new affection. Paul calls it the affection of Christ. The very love of Christ is in you. Okay? And that love of Christ in you now fuels a hunger and satisfies that hunger for knowledge and discernment. So it goes from our heart to our mind, and we're growing in that knowledge and discernment. And then he says this new knowledge and discernment produces in us a pure and blameless or holy life. So, church, pray for God to give us taste buds for the sweetness of his word, for the sweetness of him. And thank him that what he started in you, he's going to be faithful to complete And let's pray God, pray that he will lead us, enable us to to take this word and let that be what others hear from us. Let that be what others see in us. As Jesus prayed, let that be what sanctifies us and sets us apart. Right? Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you today for your word. As we will see in next week's passage, it is a light for us, Lord. It is a a lamp to our feet, and we thank you for it. And Father, I pray today that you would grow in your people a hunger for you and your word. Help us to taste and see how sweet you are, how sweet your word is. Lord, grow in us 
that ability to discern. We need it, Father. I need it. What the world puts on my plate sometimes is sweet, it seems. But Lord, in the end, it's not. So, Father, we, we just pray you'd help us to testify together, Lord. How sweet is your word. How sweet are your ways. How sweet it is, Lord, to trust in you. Grow that, Lord, I pray, in this precious church. Grow it in your church throughout this community. And do that for your glory, God, and for the good of this community. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.